Dave, now, uh, have you ever heard of the uh, Bruce Wolf character, Chet Chit Chat? I have, yes. So that character was based on two people. Right. Uh, one was Chet Kopic, right. who mm-hmm. was our friend. Uh, mm-hmm. We published his book. The late Chet Kopic, yeah. Uh, the other is Chuck Swirsky. Mm-hmm. And Chuck Swirsky is on the show today. That's that's crazy. I, I mean, isn't it funny that we ended up uh, publishing books from both of those guys? Yeah. At, well, we should definitely do a promotion. We should do a Chet Chit Well, now we got to do Bruce Wolf. Okay. To, to bring the whole the whole circle around, okay. we're going to limit to him some <laughs> topics that he is going to be able to talk. Well, Bruce, concentrate on your sports, okay? Uh, but yeah, we got a lot of great stuff here to talk about with Chuck Swirsky, and uh, we'll be doing that in a moment. But first, listen to this other fine old pie show. All right, Adam, what uh, country are you from? I am from England. What is the best soccer league in the entire world? The English Premier League. What is your day job? Director of Coaching for Illinois Youth Soccer. So if you were, say, a fan of English Premier League and you wanted to hear the the opinions of someone who is from England, who knows a lot of soccer, what podcast would you tell people they need to listen to? Free Kicks with Adam and Rick. And that's on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Free Kicks, a Tony Lasano podcast, an Opie show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. The following is a Tony Lasano podcast. An Opie show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. This is the Minutia Man Celebrity Interview with Rick and Dave. Okay, if you live in Chicago, you know this week's guest. This year, he will do his 2000th NBA game. Has that already happened, Chuck? No, it's going to happen, Lord willing, if everything goes according to plan and we don't have any uh, hiccups along the way, uh, except for January 13th. Okay. And it's a Friday night against Oklahoma City. Okay, great. Well, uh, please welcome to the show the radio play-by-play man for the Chicago Bulls and a brand new author, Chuck Swirsky. Hello, Chuck. First of all, uh, congratulations on Always a Pleasure, which is a great Yes, well, thank you. And I want to thank you, Rick and Dave, and the rest of the group um, with Eckhart's Press for their support and assistance as we journey into really uncharted waters. This is my first book, and quite candidly, I, I... I really don't know what to expect, right? <laughs> well, so far, so good. I think it's going great. You know what? I have a uh, a deep basketball question for you that I wanted to start Absolutely. with. Absolutely. Anything, Rick. Okay. Fire away. You have become famous for dancing after Bulls victories. How did that start? That's my deep basketball question. Because, you know, I love watching uh, the videos that you put out afterwards. I, I like to retweet them. Uh, uh, Chuck dances after every Bulls victory. How did that? How did that begin? You know where where did it start? And and, and are you going to keep doing it? Well, I, I um, I'm going to do it. I think I'm going to do it probably for major games. Okay. Because I think uh, you know the importance of big victories. So I will continue it. Maybe not on a daily basis. Well, I'd like to say daily because that means the Bulls would. <laughs> go you know for 60 wins or so but the truth of the matter is that during covid brick all of us and i think everyone regardless of their profession uh all of us were burned out i mean we were just 
homogenized and it was so antiseptic we couldn't really deal with people along the way and we were doing games road games from um the united center and our engineer rich wyatt did a fabulous job putting big screen tvs together and monitors and headsets and he did his job so very well and i'm so thankful and my heart is full of gratitude but rick one night the Bulls won a game. Remember, we weren't very good that year. And the, the Bulls won a game. And I was I just had to exhale. And I did a little dance. And little did I know that our engineer, Rich Wyatt, was taping it. And so he said, hey, can I put this up? And I said, why not? And the next thing we know, we got like 25,000 hits. <laughs> And, and so we said, why not? We're keeping with. And so like every time I pass the hallways, Javante Green of the Bulls says, hey, you're dancing tonight. So <laughs> I and love then it. we had one case, Rick, where Stephen Curry, who was kind enough to contribute, uh, you know, a paragraph for the forward. Yeah. And uh, so we and I've known Stephen since he was a kid, literally a kid. Right. Uh, his father, Dell played for the Raptors when I was in Toronto and so Rick last year we're in the hallway and we were you know had a mutual greeting and at the end I said Stefan you know have a good game and I mean that sincerely because I think the world of him and I said Stefan have a good game and I you know went started walking took about maybe 10 15 steps he goes oh Chuck Chuck turned around he goes by the way you're not dancing tonight <laughs> That's funny. Do you, do you ever Google uh, dance moves to add new moves to your repertoire? Do you... Well, I know that's a great question. <laughs> I invite your listeners to make any suggestions via video to me on Twitter at CTS Bulls, at CTS Bulls, or you can find me on Instagram or Facebook. And so I'm, I'm welcoming everyone who has any type of suggestion. Trust me. I'm horrible. Okay. Well, no, I don't think so at all. I think you're pretty good. Um, now, this is not your first time with the Bulls. You were also the public address guy. Um, we're going back a ways now. When, what what years are we talking about when you were doing the PA there? Uh, that would have been 81, 82, and 82, 83. The two years that Tommy Edwards left uh, to go to Boston to program a radio station and I knew it was going to be short term. Okay. And then Jordan arrived and uh, Tommy stayed in Boston and they opened things up because I had responsibilities to do play by play for DePaul. Right. So uh, Ray Clay came on the scene and you know the rest of the story there. But for two seasons, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, the 80, 81 season, I guess I did three seasons, come to think of it 80, 81, 81, 82. 82, 83. And so the 81 season, uh, it's the loudest I've ever heard Chicago Stadium for a mini playoff series against the Knicks. And it was a Friday night. And I'm telling you, Rick, that place rocked. And that propelled the Bulls to a series against Boston. They got swept and the Celtics went on to win the crown that year. But I'm telling you right now, there was nothing like Chicago Stadium. I loved Chicago Stadium. Of all the venues I've called games uh, in different sports, without any doubt, Chicago Stadium, the old barn across the street 
from the, the United Center and now a parking lot. But Chicago Stadium was fantastic. Yeah, I, I love that place too. So you were there in the early 80s, and then you came back to be the play-by-play guy. Now what? This is your 15th season, is that correct? 15th year, yeah. yeah. It goes quickly. So did anything happen to the Bulls between that time? I you know, didn't follow yeah. you there. Yeah, well, let's see. Well, I was at WGN. I was sports director at GM Radio and the first three titles. Yeah. Um, I was in L.A., in fact, for Game 5 for their first ever NBA championship when, you know, that's the infamous timeout huddle where Phil Jackson's right. looking at Michael Jordan and he's telling MJ, listen, you know what? They're picking you up three-quarter court. They're trapping you. You got a man open in Pax. Give him the ball. And Pax delivered. Yeah. And so, you know, and then it went from L.A., Portland, Phoenix. And uh, I left in 94 to call University of Michigan games. So I was not in Chicago for 96, 97, 98. Yeah. So you missed the Rodman years. I missed the Rodman years. But, yeah. you know, it was, there was – when I got to Michigan – and I became sports director at WJR, which was a huge station, very similar to WGN. The you know there were some effects of the bad boys, but that was kind of disappearing from the face and scope of the NBA. Their run was over, um, thanks to the Bulls, and they were turning into a competitive team, but not the bad boys of the uh, late '80s, early '90s. Let me ask you this, as, as somebody who is uh, the ultimate insider now, um, you watched The Last Dance, right, With uh, on ESPN. Yes. What, are your, yes. what are your thoughts on that? Well, I thought it was great. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I think MJ was very transparent uh, because, as we know, as all players are, they kind of put up um, – a curtain around them sometimes and we really don't get a, a real chance to hear what's inside their heart and soul their basketball dna or other areas of their life and i get that that's fine that's their choice their decision i respect that but in the last dance i think uh as michael was very reflective uh on those years and also where this journey was taking him as a player as a baseball player through retirements and through you know the agonizing end of his bulls run um i think it was really refreshing especially rick at the time when the documentary and the series was released when we were inside kept inside uh because of covid and i think the entertainment vehicle we were really desperate and this came at the right time and that's why i think coupled with the fact that MJ is MJ and he's still the most popular athlete in the world and he's been retired for 20 years. <laughs> right. And, and so, I mean, that, I think that speaks volumes about the impact Michael Jordan has had on culture, lifestyle, sports, shoes, entertainment, uh, apparel, everything. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're right about the pandemic being an important part of the popularity of that series, though, because the entire country watched that because we, we had nothing to do. It was <laughs> like during lockdown. Yes. Um, all right. So the the other thing about that series is and we've I've talked to a couple of people now who are reporters that were covering the Bulls. They felt that it, maybe it was a little unfair 
to Jerry Krause and to mm-hmm. Jerry Reinsdorf. What do you think about that? Well, here's my take. I I, I think that Jerry Krause um, was an outstanding general manager and never received his just due. And I've got opinions about this, Rick, and I've really never shared them um, verbally, and I'll do this with you. Okay. Number one, I think that Jerry brought some on himself because uh, he did not trust the media. He did. He was a little bit uncomfortable with um, with making sure that you know wh- who his circle of friends are, his inner 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 circle. And at times, I'm not even sure the the Bulls scouts were in his inner circle as far as how much, because I think Jerry was very very protective and really didn't want to. Um, give out any information. And again, I get that. That's that's his style. Um, but I think his biggest drawback were his people skills. And once Jordan aligned himself with Phil, then there was a gap that you know really never closed. Right. And so um, you know, I got along with him well for whatever reason. We had some really good talks within boundaries. Uh, I never stepped outside those boundaries, nor did he put me in a position where he would, you know, kind of um, completely um, trust where I was at, because I think that was Jerry's personality. But I respect him. He should have gone the Hall of Fame long before. I'm extremely disappointed that he was not elected into the Hall of Fame while he was living. I think it's a shame. And I think, Michael, uh, if if there was one element where like he came down on Krauss and he came down on Jerry Reinsdorf, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. And I think it was a great marriage for Jordan and the bulls and the bulls and Jordan. And I think Jerry took great care of him and Jerry Krause put players around him where he won. I mean, you know, like he did his job yeah. and at the end of the day, I mean, so what if they have a personality disagreement? Give the man his due. Yeah. All right. So you you agree. That's that's a good to hear. You know, I I uh, became a fan of yours, Chuck, uh, when I was a senior in high school, listening to your <laughs> sports talk show on the Loop on Sunday nights. That was really the first sports talk show I ever heard, and it was like a revelation to me. Uh, but there's something I always wondered about during that stretch. Um, I know you're a sports guy, but you were on a rock station. And while you were doing it, did you feel like that was a good fit for you? I mean, was the music, is that the kind of music that you prefer listening to? Is music a part of your life? I mean, I know you're a dancer, but. uh... (laughs) No, I'm not a dancer. Um, But, but yeah, I love music. I'm, again, because my generation, I grew up with Motown. I love Motown. I love, you know, I grew up listening to the Eagles and Led Zeppelin and the, uh, you know, you could go right down the list, Fleetwood Mac. And so classic rock, you know, Springsteen is from my generation, Rolling Stones, Beatles. And so like, and that's not to say that I haven't expanded my taste, but for the most part, I still listen to music that, you know, touched a huge part of my life and um so you know when when i look at those things 
I think back at the days with the loop and I'm saying to myself, okay, they were thinking outside the box. They put me on morning afternoon drive. Uh, the ratings at the radio station were doing extremely well. Yeah. As a matter of fact, if you look at 80 and 81, they were right there. I mean, top three, top four because of their personalities and music. But for the most part, their personalities. I mean, when you have Steve Dahl, Gary Meyer, right. you had Mitch Michaels, Sky Daniels, Patty Hayes, um, you know, that's a very powerful lineup. And so I was just there and, you know, we had our bumps in the road along the way because I don't think at times they really understood the importance of sports. And here's a newcomer coming in, but, you know, it all worked out. Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely did. It, it, it led you to WGN, which uh, those were some pretty heady days. You're talking about the ratings at uh, at the loop, but WGN was number one with a bullet when yep. you were there. And and there was also great sports uh, stories happening. You, you talked about uh, the Bulls, but um, 1984, the Cubs revival happened. You were there when the the Bears won the Super Bowl. You were yep. there when their biggest stars in Chicago radio history, people like Wally Phillips and Roy Leonard and Bob Collins were there. Talk a little bit about your time at WGN and what that meant to you. Rick, I, I can't begin to tell you when I look back at those years how impactful they were, and I'm still feeling it today. I am so blessed that I walked in, that Dan Fabian gave me a chance to walk in the door. And, I mean, I'm looking at superstar after superstar after superstar, and I don't use that term lightly. And so I'm looking at, you know, you walk in, Wally Phillips, number one in Chicago, year after year after year, period. I like mean, there was 20 years there, or something 20 like that. Years, there was, there was no one, you know, remotely, I mean, you know, stations would change formats. They would get, you know, a little bit of a bump and then they fall back. Wally was consistent. And then you had Roy Leonard and Roy uh, was an incredible interviewer. And, you know, he would bring in all these guests and these guests were so comfortable with Roy and they trusted Roy because they knew when, he, they walked in to that on-air studio that that Roy wasn't going to ask two you know softball questions and then all of a sudden turn it into sixty minutes. That was not Roy, right? You know, it Roy, was it was a friendly kind. I mean, I, I remember yes. tuning in and hearing like Mel Brooks on the. I mean, these were huge stars that he had on. Yes, absolutely. And then Bob was Bob. You know, Bob was just a a, a guy who people loved and they could relate to and Bob brought his life into the program. And I think people love that. They wanted to hear somebody that was real, that was transparent. And so we had all these on air people then Milt Rosenberg, who definitely identified to a very intellectual element of the listening audience and people who really thought outside the box and people who were in the box and Milt covered it all. And then Eddie Schwartz came on the scene uh, and did overnights. And so, and we haven't even talked about the on-air sports personalities. Right. So, I mean, it was, it was a 
an, an on-air smorgasbord of greatness. Well, uh, there's a great story in your book about Bob Collins um, and, and how close the two of you were. And you were a big part of that show. I think people probably still remember you most from that time when you were on that Bob Collins show. Tell the story about uh, when you found out about what happened to Bob. Well, well, I was I was broadcasting a Raptors game, and the Raptors were playing the Atlanta Hawks, and it was routine. Sometimes I have my phone on, sometimes I don't. Um, but for the most part, um, you know, I kind of put it on obviously vibrate. And so during during the game, now remember we're Eastern Time Zone, we're one hour ahead of Chicago, um, and I'm calling a game in Toronto. And the phone goes off early uh, in the opening quarter. So this is about 6.15 Central Time, 7.15 Eastern. And, I mean, my phone is blowing up. And the engineer sees this, and I pointed toward to the phone towards our engineer, and I said, go ahead, you know, just take some calls. So he is taking one call after another while I'm actually calling an NBA game wreck. Yeah. And so the first thing that comes to my senses, something has happened to my family. You know, what's going on? But he takes like four, five, six calls in a two-minute span. We call a timeout. I take my headset off, and Greg Lowe was our engineer. And I said, Greg, what is going on? And he said, I uh, got some bad news, and the, I thought immediately of my family. And I said, what? And he said, a friend of yours died in a plane crash. I said, what? Now, again, keep in mind, these breaks, Rick, and for your listening audience, NBA breaks are probably a couple minutes long. Yeah. So here I am trying to, you know, digest and understand what's happening. He goes, a guy by the name of Bob Collins. Yeah. And I went, are you flat out kidding me? What? And he said, Chuck, we're on the air. I, well, I, I had so many emotions going through my brain, my heart, my soul, and thinking about Bob. And here, I've got to get focused on an NBA. It was one of the hardest broadcasts I've ever done because Bob and I were close. Even when I left for Detroit in the fall of 94, we would talk maybe two, three times a month. I had spoken to him a week before, and we were going to get together in Milwaukee because he loved to get on the, you know, his motorcycle, and he loved Milwaukee. And I'm thinking, wow. And I had just seen him because we had played the Bulls uh, when I was with the Raps. So it was it was heart wrenching. It still is when I, you know, like while I'm telling you the story right now, Rick, yeah. I have plenty of emotions. Well, you write about it beautifully in the book as well. Uh, and you know, you, you mentioned, um, going to Detroit, uh, and, and Michigan. And to me, the most shocking revelation in your book is that you had to do all the games by yourself. And I don't mean just you're just a one-man uh, announcing crew. 
you're the whole crew. You yes. had to set up the equipment. You'd think like a, a Big Ten school, especially a huge school like University of Michigan, would have you know the greatest facilities in the world. But here's Chuck with wires, uh, plugging in wires uh, before the 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 basketball <laughs> game, hoping to God that everything is working. I yep. you know as a former producer, I know that uh, anxiety. That was going on every day for you. Yeah. Well, I think there's a picture in the book, Rick, of me trying to yeah. make sure the, the wires are all in, in sync because we wouldn't get on the air. So here's the story. I got spoiled. Even in when I was at Ohio U doing high school games, they would bring a student engineer who would put everything together. Then I go and do start doing some play-by-play in Columbus a little bit. Uh, and then of course it mushroomed into the job in Chicago with the Chicago sting with DePaul. I had engineers. Yeah. So now I'm thinking, okay, I'm doing the university of Michigan and I get to Michigan in October of 94. And I see this huge production, Rick, a Michigan football on game day. Oh my gosh, Rick. <laughs> I mean, they had, you know, like three, four engineers to make sure that, you know, the mics were set, the tones, the everything was precise. Yeah, crowd you know, microphones. Make, and oh, yeah. I, I mean, it was crazy. Um, and and I'm thinking, wow, this is big time. This is like, this is huge. This is like NFL stuff. And so, like, about two weeks before the basketball season starts, uh, and we opened up in Maui, the Maui Classic, the tournament, and, and they called me in, and it was um, uh, two engineers, uh, and Ed Buderbaugh was the chief engineer, and he calls me and says, Chuck, I, w- I want to go over the equipment you'll be taking to Hawaii with you. <laughs> and that was the first red flag. <laughs> and I said, I'm sorry? I beg your pardon? He goes, yeah, you gotta, you know, you're going to bring equipment because, like, you're engineering the game. I said, I'm engineering the game. I've got to bring equipment. I've never engineered a game in my life. He goes, oh, it's simple. So I walk into his office. As God is my witness, folks, I am telling you the truth. There are like at least 15 different cords. And they've got these two big mixer boxes. And I'm thinking, no way. (laughs) I, I no feel your way. pain. I really do. And he goes, let's go over. Let's start. This is the wire that connects this to that. And then make sure that you've got to have this. And I'm thinking, Ed, can't we just hire somebody in Honolulu? No, you can't. Or in Maui. <laughs> so I said, the, the, the previous broadcaster did this? He goes, yeah. I said, what about Michigan football? They don't do this. That's Michigan football. <laughs> So I had to bring this equipment. So I'm at, and it was heavy. So I'm I'm taking a flight from Detroit Metro. Yeah, I mean, you're even like talking about, uh, you know, on the plane, you've got to carry the equipment in your suitcases. Yes. <laughs> and, and I get there and they wait and it's like really heavy and a lot of money. I call the program director from the airport. And I said, like, I don't know how you did this before, but I've got a bill coming, and it's like for $500 one way to Hawaii. And the program director says, $500? 
I said, yes. I said, you know, I need the equipment. And he goes, all right. He goes, I want you to FedEx the equipment from Hawaii back to Detroit after the tournament. I said, well, like we have a game when we come back four days later. He goes, well, hopefully it'll get here four days. (laughs) And um, And so sure enough, I did my first ever where I was, I had done game solo before, but as you mentioned, this was the complete package. And uh, only through the grace of God did we get through it. And I and I put like orange tape on one cord that goes into, I mean, it was like paint by numbers, okay? <laughs> orange, blue, green, yellow, black, red. And that's, that, that's how I did it. And I just FedEx the equipment everywhere I went. And I would give the uh, basketball student manager of the opposing team, like we'd go in the West Lafayette and I would send the equipment a day or two ahead. It would arrive in the hotel. And then after the game, I'd pack things up. I'd find the student manager of the Purdue Boilermakers, for example, I'd give them 25 bucks and I would say, here's the case number for FedEx with WJR radio. And he would take it over to FedEx. He made 25 bucks on the side and there you go. <laughs> that is, uh, that's the big time right there. That is yeah. uh, so funny. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, but it was a good experience as far as doing yes. the, uh, the games. It was a very high profile and it did lead to your first NBA gig, which was in Toronto. And you can tell by reading the book, Chuck, that you really loved it there, didn't you, in Toronto? Yes. Tell us, I, tell I us about it. that. Well, I mean, you know, like they welcomed our entire family. Although when, when we were moving across from the United States and we were going from, uh, you know, we got in the car, going from Ann Arbor, had to go through Windsor and we're at Customs. And so we had all these, you know, the papers and, you know, that we are moving there. This is just not like a weekend visit. So we're in the waiting room and we got papers that are, you know, you have to have identification and, you know, the certificates, the whole bit, landed immigrancy. And so they said, you know, like, what will you be doing? And there are like three officers in the room. And I said, well, I'm, I'm the new play-by-play announcer for the Toronto Raptors. And one of them, all of a sudden, it, it, she leaves her seat and says, you're doing the Toronto Raptors? And I said, yes, officer. Oh, I'll tell you what, your soccer programs in Toronto are the best. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I said, uh, okay. So the Toronto Raptors are a basketball team, not soccer, basketball Oh, oh, okay. Well, good luck to you. Because, you know, the the franchise was still in its infancy. Right. And a lot of people, a lot of people really um, didn't really understand. It, t- it took or, a while to catch on. Yeah, and, and the attendance was great. But, but people, you know, really didn't understand what was happening until Vince Carter arrived. When Vince Carter, because people in Toronto were excited to see the other players in the NBA, you know, this is the first go around. So when the Bulls would come to town or the Lakers would come to town or Boston or Philly, Detroit, yeah. you know, basketball fans, you know, are accustomed to seeing stars. And now they're in their own backyard of Toronto. But now the Raptors 
you know, it was Vince Carter. And Vince Carter played above the rim. And it was a perfect storm for me to arrive there in my first year, his first year, because it was highlights, not just once a game, Rick, multiple times a game. Yeah, well, he he's one of the all-time greats, Vince Carter. Yes, Hall of Fame player. Tell us, what, what, didn't you have like a uh, a signature phrase that you used to say? Yeah, well, I mean, we had a, a few of them with Vince. It was Vince Sanity, or it was Air Canada Carter, because the building, the naming rights went to Air Canada Airlines. So Air Canada and Vince played above the rim. So you know that was that was just a great tie-in. And then we had the saying, um, get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game's <laughs> over. So one day I got a letter. I love that one. I love that one. That's a, such Well, we, I, I got a letter, Rick, from a fan. I got a letter from a fan, and he said, listen, you know, I love watching you on TV. I love watching the Raptors. And he goes, you know, but I, I just get so involved and yet I'm, I'm really hungry. So when you think the Raptors have won the game, you know, just, just, you know, let us know and I'll go in the kitchen. By the way, I love salami and cheese. <laughs> oh, so that's so, where that came from. Okay. So like uh, a couple days later, we're doing a game. Raptors are up by like eight, nine points with like 35 seconds to go. And out of nowhere, it just said, get out the salami and cheese, mama. This ball game is over. And the producer in the truck, he's telling me my headset. And again, the the viewing audience can't listen to this. But in my headset, he's saying, "Uh, Chuck, what's that? (laughs) And I hit the mute button where I could talk to the producer. But the producer, you know, again, it's just me and him. And I said, I'll I'll let you know afterwards. And he goes, are you okay? Everything good? <laughs> do, you, do you have a stroke or something? <laughs> yeah. So I kid you not, the next day, the switchboard lit up, and they said, hey, we we're watching the Raptor game. Man, that was unbelievable. What's this salami and cheese? <laughs> and I stayed with it. And all of a sudden, it caught on. We're having T-shirts. People are bringing posters and banners, salami and cheese, uh, pizza, pizza, put together a promotion, salami and cheese pizza. And it was crazy. And even the reserve players, when they would enter the game with about like a minute to go and the Raptors are up by like 15, and you know how you play the 10th, 11th, and 12th guys who get a chance to play like 20 times a year in a blowout either way? Uh, they would come in, they'd see me because we were located near midcourt at the scorer's table where they would enter. And they're looking at he goes, well, you must have called salami and cheese, Chuck. <laughs> that is so cool. You know, I think your superpower, Chuck, is your positivity. It, it jumps through the pages of your book. You have four Ps that kind of define who you are. Their feature of what you write about. Talk about those four P's and and how it relates to this book. Well, I mean, yeah, because they're very, very important. The first thing is positivity, because I think you, you know, listen, life is not a straight line, Rick, and all of us have a lot of challenges that we face, some more than others. I totally get it. Some much deeper 
and uh, darker. But, you know, if we, if we arrive in our heart that there is light and that if we can stay positive and surround yourself with positive people, caring people, loving people, I think that's the first B, positivity. And then, of course, you have to have a purpose. What is your purpose? What is my purpose? And, you know, even though I love I love my job and I do love my job, my purpose in life, I, I think I've been called upon either because of the platform I've, I've been given through hard work and skill, but I think my purpose is to encourage and engage and inspire others. So when I leave this world, that my little community, my little village, my family, whatever knows, I had their back and I really truly genuinely care from a humanistic standpoint that I made a difference in someone's life for them, not for me, but for them. And that's why I think mentorship is very important. So you have positivity, purpose, and you have to have passion. And I think passion cannot be fake. It can't be cosmetic. Rick, it cannot be bought. Um, And I believe that if you have passion, it will transcend every layer and every fiber and every fabric in your body to, um, again, come up with, engage, encourage, and inspire. And the fourth P is perseverance because we're going to get knocked down. And I always think of the hill with Walter Payton, where Walter Payton would go and climb that hill time and time again. He'd bring different NFL players. He'd bring friends. He'd bring everyone to that hill. And a lot of people struggled to get up that hill. And he said, listen, we're going to stay with it until you get up that hill. And it may not happen right now, but eventually if you train and you discipline yourself and you have the positivity and purpose and passion, you will persevere. And I think perseverance in all of us, if it's a question of how badly do you want it? And if you want it bad enough, Rick, you're going to get it. Now, to what degree, I'm not sure. But if you want to get a job and become involved in the legal world or publishing or broadcasting or run your own business, you can do this. But it's not going to be easy. But if you persevere, it'll happen. Well, Chuck, uh, I got to say, uh, your book, Always a Pleasure, is a pleasure. Uh, it's available at uh, EckhartsPress.com, at ChuckSworskyTheBook.com. And uh, thank you for taking time out. I know you have a crazy schedule. May your May your next few months be filled with lots of dancing. <laughs> thank you, Rick. I sincerely appreciate it. And many thanks to everyone at Eckhart's Press. I'm I'm looking forward to uh, having, um, you know, a relationship with Eckhart's Press. I hope we can do a second book somewhere down the road because I've got some ideas. Wonderful. Uh, But uh, I I want to uh, thank uh, all of those uh, fine folks who pre-ordered, who are going to order, uh, because I do think that uh, hopefully if they can take something out of the book, it'll be uh, at least one of the four P's. Uh, purpose, positivity, passion, perseverance. So thank you. Thanks, Chuck. Have a, have a fun road trip. Thank we'll, you. We'll talk soon. 
Okay, Rick. Okay. Be well. Bye-bye. Bye. That's worse. He's he's a very authentic guy. He's Ooh. the most positive person yeah. I've ever met right. in my life. Right. Which God, uh, so God love him. It's uh, it's too bad you couldn't be yeah. here for that interview, but uh, it was fun. We did that this week. Uh, thanks again to uh, Chuck Swirsky for uh, being on the show. We also need to thank uh, Tony Lasano with opishows.com. Opi is hippo backwards. O-P-P-I-H-Shows.com. We're distributed by Ed Silla with Radio Misfits. Great Talk Radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radio Misfits. Dot com, and we'll be back again next week with a brand new episode of Minutia Men Celebrity Interview. The proceeding was a presentation of Opi Productions. Find our other great shows wherever you find podcasts, including opishows.com. Thank you. This has been a presentation of Opie Productions. Tony, can you shut up? I'm Rick. I'm Dave. And we're the hosts of the Minutia Men Podcast. Rick is the former executive producer of two Hall of Fame radio shows. Dave is an out-of-the-box thinker, a guerrilla marketer, and former advertising agency. We've been friends for 40 years. I was the best man at Dave's wedding. Yeah, you were an okay man at best. Was that really necessary? Minutia Men and Opie Show on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. <laughs>